we, uh, I know I, I packed a lot in that last lecture. Had someone say at the break, he felt like he got an entire semester class in one lecture. Um, so that might be true, actually, uh, at least at the 30,000-foot level. So we are heading down the, the final stretch here. Our last lecture, as you can see there in your outline, if you're tracking along uh, with our uh, discussion today, is going to be contenders uh, for the canon. Uh, or another way to ask the question in the subtitle, were there any apocryphal books that almost made it into the New Testament canon? So we'll start with this uh, discussion in our last lecture. I want to take us back to the year 1934 for a moment in the nation of Germany. 1934 was a big year for Germany. It was actually the year that Adolf Hitler became the Fuhrer and the complete head of the German nation and Nazi party. Of course, as we all know, it wasn't long after that before Germany invaded Poland and began World War II. But 1934 was big in Germany for another year, or for another reason. Very quietly, behind the scenes, a book was published in Germany in 1934 that would change the landscape of early Christian studies for year to come, years to come. Walter Bauer, in 1934, published his now-famous monograph, Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity. Now, compared to Hitler's rise, this wasn't much of a news story. And Bauer's book did not have much of an impact at first. But in 1971, it was translated into English, and since that time, things have radically changed in the Academy of Biblical Studies in the English-speaking world. Now, as is well known now, Bauer's thesis is pretty simple. And in fact, I, I venture to say you've probably heard it and didn't realize it was Bauer's thesis. And his thesis is basically this. His argument is that early Christianity was a bit of a mess. It was a theological quagmire. It was a battlefield where everyone was fighting it out and competing to see who was the genuine version of Christianity. No one could get along. No one could agree. Everyone had competing visions for who Jesus was and what he taught and how you were saved and what God was like and what Christian theology was. And so for Bauer, when you look at the earliest centuries of Christianity, there is no such thing as Christianity. In fact, according to Bauer, when you look at the earliest centuries of Christianity, all you have are Christianities, plural, warring it out, fighting it out to see who's going to emerge as the dominant party, who's going to actually win the theological war. And, and this is the key point here for this lecture, Bauer argued that each of these versions of Christianity had their own set of books. They had their own writings that they valued and thought were scriptural. They had their own books that they thought were meaningful and helpful for understanding what Christianity was all about. And so, according to Bauer's thesis and according to his book, the things that we look at in our canon today, the 27 books in our New Testament today, according to Bauer, are just the books of the theological winners. Why would, you, why would you think those are normative, says Bauer? Why do you think those are any special, more special than any other books in the ancient world? Those are just the books of the group that happened to win. If another group had won, we would have a different set of books. So, says Bauer, the 27 books that you know in the New Testament canon today aren't special. They should not be privileged. They should not be honored in any distinctive way. You should not be prejudiced against other books as a result. Apocryphal books... Books outside the New Testament, books we're discovering today are just as valid, says Bauer, because your books are just simply the result of theological wars. Now, that particular argument you've probably heard, at least some version. And incredibly, Bauer's thesis in his 1934 book has been roundly refuted by scholars for a long time. But in modern years, it's seen a resurgence. It's sort of Bauer, in one sense, and pardon the pun, has been resurrected here uh, in the modern world of scholarship. 
This is largely due to scholars like Bart Ehrman or Helmut Koister at Harvard or Elaine Peggles at Princeton and beyond. Moreover, Bauer's uh, book has been resurrected based on actually an archaeological discovery as well. You probably know that in 1945 was a very famous discovery in a place called Nag Hammadi, Egypt, a discovery of what are called the Gnostic Gospels. In that particular discovery, they discovered a whole cache of scriptures that were Gnostic in, in orientation that apparently some early Christian group used, and this sort of bolstered Bauer's idea. And it made people think, well, hold on, wait a minute, maybe there were competing groups out there that had their own Bibles and their own set of scriptures, and maybe those just are, are just as valid as our current books, Therefore, we should not necessarily privilege our books over other books. Now, that whole thesis is quite compelling to the modern ear. I've found over the years that not only do scholars say these sorts of things, but the media absolutely loves this sort of thing. Every time there's a new thing discovered, it's, it's just, you know, we're going to rewrite the Bible. And, uh, you know, it was the gospel of Judas a few years ago. Um, just last year, it was the so-called gospel of Jesus' wife. You may have heard about this. It turned out probably to be a forgery. I wrote some things on that, too. Uh, and every year, the new discoveries come, and the media gets excited about it, and then it fizzles away. People have this sense that they want to try to rewrite biblical history, and they, the reason they want, the way they want to do it is by getting new books in the canon. There's lots, there's lots of ways to change Christianity. One way is just to change the interpretation of the book. That's been done for a long time, right? So you have the same books, different interpretation. That still happens today, of course. But in modern era, it's different. They're saying, well, I want a different version of Christianity, and the way I'm going to get there is by actually changing the books. And so here's the resurgence of apocryphal writings. And, of course, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, that came out in the early 2000s was part and parcel of this whole movement. That whole book, as most of you probably know, either read or heard about it, was just a book that was, was trumpeting apocryphal books as just as valid, and there was this big conspiracy in early Christianity suppressed them, and it was Constantine who came around and, and forced the church to accept Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and on and on it went. So what do we do with that particular claim? And it's a widespread one. Well, what I want to do in this final lecture is ask the question, do these books really have a shot at being in the canon? Or maybe better put, historically, did they have a shot at being in the canon? Were apocryphal books as popular as we're made to believe in the common uh, media and scholarship of our day? I will, of course, suggest no, and I'm going to break this down into two responses today, what we'll call a general response here, where I'll talk about just the, the general way this is exaggerated, and then we'll talk about a specific response where I'll actually walk us through particular books, and I'll talk about what I deem to be the two best shots at a non-canonical uh, book that, that would have made it into the canon, and then we'll, we'll do a spattering of other books as well. So this will be a fun tour of the world of apocryphal literature. So let's start first with the general response. The role of apocryphal literature, I'm going to argue here, has been greatly exaggerated by modern scholars. I've already indicated why this is the case. People have this fascination with the with, with sort of conspiracy theories and the suppression of information. But there's been a couple of things that I think have been used to make this argument. And so what I want to do in this first sub-point, point A here, is to challenge a particular uh, method that's been used to try to show how popular apocryphal books were. You can see it there in point A. I want to argue here that mere use of apocryphal books does not prove their authoritative status. One of the most common mistakes in modern scholarship, and one of the most common mistakes I find just remarkably repeated time and time again, is this idea that the use of a book demonstrates its authoritative status. That merely using a book shows that someone regarded it as scriptural. What I tried to do in my last lecture is not make that mistake. 
I certainly showed books were used in my last lecture, but I tried to show also why we thought they were being used distinctively as scripture, or at least as authoritative. But unfortunately, this point gets missed on many folks, so that they will argue that the mere use of an apocryphal book almost proves that it was received as scripture. I'll give you an example of this. Scholar Jeffrey Hanneman makes this uh, mistake, I think, numerous times. I want you to notice a few things that he says. First, Hanneman, and I think here rightly observes this truth, Christian writers of the second century refer to many other Gospels besides the canonical four. And he's absolutely correct. This is an important thing for you to know so that you don't get blindsided by a Da Vinci Code style argument. A lot of Christians actually don't know this. Early Christian writers, second century, third century, even fourth century, use apocryphal writings. They use apocryphal Gospels. They find it to be useful and valuable at various points. Hanneman's right about this. Early Christians did use uh, apocryphal material, and we'll jump into some of that in a little bit later in this lecture. The problem, though, isn't whether that's true. People have known this has been true for a long time. The problem is the conclusion you draw from that fact. And here's the conclusion that Hanneman draws. It's a rather unexpected conclusion. He says, after observing that Christians use apocryphal gospels in this instance, his conclusion is, this would seem unlikely if the fourfold gospel canon had already been established. But how does this follow? Think about it with me. Hanneman never actually explains how the mere use of non-canonical Jesus tradition is evidence that the four Gospels have not been established as canonical. Why are the two mutually exclusive? It's almost like Hanneman's working off a certain principle, and the principle is this. Once you uh, accept a certain book or kind of book as canonical, therefore you can never, ever, ever use any other books outside that canonical list. You can never use material that falls outside those books. It's unclear where that assumption comes from. And Hanneman actually never offers an argument for it. In fact, the historical situation of early Christianity would suggest the exact opposite. We know that in the second century in particular, as I've already indicated, the Christians were willing to use apocryphal material. They were willing to use oral tradition to make their case. They often found it to be beneficial and useful. Here's the trick, though, is that even when patristic writers would do this, that did not necessarily mean they took these books as scripture. Patristic writers were quite capable, I'm going to show this in a moment, Patristic writers were quite capable of distinguishing between material that was scripture and material that was nevertheless useful. In other words, they didn't take all apocryphal literature and say, get a match, we're going to burn it all. What they said was, maybe there's some good stuff in there, maybe we could use it from time to time, but that's not the same thing as saying it's canon or that it's scripture. That distinction needs to be maintained. If you think about it, just incidentally for a moment, it's the same thing that's true in, in our own libraries, you know. I've been wondering what would happen if my library was buried in the sand for a thousand years and someone discovered it. What would they think I thought scripture was? Well, maybe they would look at my library and say, well, golly, he's got all these books by John Calvin. He thought John Calvin was scriptural, right? Or something like this. I'm like, well, no, can I use someone like John Calvin or, or cite him without thinking he's scriptural? Or, or why can't I cite other things and find them useful and beneficial without considering them scriptural and so on? But what's particularly interesting is that Hanneman, the scholar we're talking about here, fails to make this distinction we're talking about. It's a particularly stunning mess because in one paragraph earlier from the prior quote I gave you, he actually chides other scholars for confusing, quote, acquaintance with the four Gospels and the four Gospel canon. In other words, Hammond wants to make the point clear that mere use does not imply authoritative status. Don't think just using the canonical Gospels means it was received as Scripture. Fair enough. But then how is he able to turn around in the very next passage and claim that the mere use of apocryphal material shows that it had an authoritative status, the kind of authoritative status that would call into question the acceptance of the canonical four. Now, that kind of confusion, believe it or not, exists even beyond uh, this particular example. I'll give you another example of where this confusion is often made. 
There's a very famous story in early Christianity regarding the Gospel of Peter. I'll talk about the Gospel of Peter more in a minute. But actually, in the early 3rd century, uh, the church at Rosas was using the Gospel of Peter. I was reading from it. And they actually wrote a letter to their bishop by the name of Serapion and said, hey, is it okay if we use this gospel? Serapion said, fine, go ahead. Turns out later that Serapion, reading it himself at a later point, discovered that it was heretical. It had all kinds of weird ascetic teachings in it and so forth. So Serapion condemned it, saying, this is something you should not read. What's interesting, though, is that some scholars have taken that story, Harry Gamble being one of those, and his conclusion from that story is this, that the fourfold gospel collection had not yet become normative because of this situation in Rosas. However, it seems to be missed that there's no indication in Serapion's own description of the event, which is the only description of it we have, that the Gospel of Peter was either regarded as Scripture by the church at Rosas, by himself, or even functioned or used as Scripture in any one of those contexts. On the contrary, we would hardly expect a bishop to approve a book as Scripture that he's never even read, which is exactly what he would have had to have been doing if we were to take it that way. Moreover, Serapion actually states in his own account that he actually is very much aware of the scriptural books that have been handed down to the church and that the Gospel of Peter is not one of them, which suggests that he never had any intimation at all to think that it was going to be added to the canon or that it was legitimate as Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Once again, there seems to be a confusion between the use of apocryphal material and the use of it as scripture. Now, the ability for patristic writers to make this distinction, I think, is best exemplified in two very famous uh, patristic writers, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, and you can see on your notes there, I'll say a quick word about each of these individuals. I already mentioned Clement of Alexandria briefly in the prior lecture. Uh, Origen was his disciple, both at Alexandria. Here's the thing to note about both Clement and or Origen. These men were intellectual geniuses in every real sense of the word. They had a towering intellect, and they were familiar with a vast swath of literature, Greco-Roman literature, even, even, even knowing Plato and citing him, they knew Jewish literature, they, they knew apocryphal books, they certainly knew canonical books. And whenever they made their arguments, you know what they would do? They would just do, they would just appeal to every source they had to make their case. So what you have is you have Clement of Alexandria, for example, he would quote from books known as the preaching of Peter, the gospel of the Egyptians, and the gospel of the Hebrews. You also quote from other non-canonical writings. Now you might take from that that maybe Clement doesn't think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are anything special. Here's the amazing thing, though. Clement elsewhere says the exact opposite. Clement elsewhere says that there's four and only four traditional Gospels under the heavens, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, what you have to do is realize that if Clement's saying this, he's telling you something about his own way of working. I'm fine citing and using as helpful or beneficial all kinds of stuff. I'll cite Plato if it's helpful. But when it comes to Scripture, we're talking about just these four that count as Gospels. Martin Hengel does a good job reminding us of the, of the way this works with Clement. He says this, Clement's relative generosity towards apocryphal texts and traditions, which is connected with the unique spiritual Mayu in Alexandria and his constant controversies with many kinds of discussion partners, should not obscure the fact that even for him, the apostolic origin and special church authority of the four Gospels was already unassailable. What you have, then, is in Clement of Alexandria, a walking, talking example of exactly what we're talking about here. It's a person who cites extensively from apocryphal literature, but then in the very next breath is completely comfortable saying, but none of those are scripture, and the only scripture I recognize are these four. Origen does the same thing. Origen uses all kinds of apocryphal works. He, he actually, at one point, even includes the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Hebrews. 
And he was able to glean information from these books he deemed useful. Why? And here's the trick. Patristic writers realized that these books were often a mix of good and bad things. If you take a, a non-canonical book, it's always a mix of good and bad things, right? And so there's nothing wrong with an author looking at a book like that and gleaning the good and leaving out the bad. You do this all the time in books that you read. When I sign books for my, my class at uh, RTS, I often tell my students, you think it goes without saying, that I don't endorse everything in these books, even if they're books I love and like. There's only one book I endorse everything in. And that's it, right? Every other book i got to give that qualification to. I don't always say it, but it's implied. Not everything that is in these books is absolutely right. It's a mix. Why? Because it's a normal book. It's a book that's written by people who aren't under any distinctive inspiration or should be given any distinctive category. But does that mean it's rubbish? Or that I can't learn anything from it? Or it gets everything wrong? Well, that'd be, that would be ridiculous, right? So we do the same thing in our modern day. Well, Origen did this. He would use the Gospel of the Hebrews. And he would say, well, there's positive things here. We can learn a few things here, and he might even consider certain traditions in there to be historical. But what does Origen say later? Four canonical Gospels alone are unquestionable in the church of God under heaven. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is that incredibly, even with these clarifications, the scholar Hammond we're referring to, uh, appeals to Origen and Clement as examples of his view, which is that apocryphal Gospels were popular in the early church, and therefore that threatened the canonical four, despite the fact that Origen and Clement are actually evidence of the opposite view, which is that early Christians were quite willing to use apocryphal material from time to time, uh, stuff they thought was generally okay, but they would always distinguish it carefully from Scripture. Now, one, one uh, note on this before we leave this point, and that is just because uh, patristic writers were willing to use apocryphal material from time to time doesn't mean they used all apocryphal material from time to time. There are some books that were so outrageous, so ridiculous, so heretical, that they would ban them, and they would say, "That's you know, we're not, we're not going to use that book. As we'll see, we're going to look at a couple examples of that today. Uh, but then other books were a hodgepodge, and they would pull from them in other ways. So the first point I want to make in terms of a general response is mere use does not mean reception. And that one thing alone is going to change people's perceptions of how popular these books were or whether they were really on track to canonicity. Second, uh, general response that I want to bring up is, is uh, taking a look at the manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence suggests the apocryphal books were not nearly as popular as claimed. I want to think about it this way for a moment. Let's imagine, how, how do we know how popular a book was in the ancient world? Well, there's sort of two ways to know. One way we've already discussed, which is you could find out how patristic writers use those books. Okay, We've been doing that. We've been doing that in the last few lectures. But there's another way. Is actually a way that I do a, a lot of my own work in, and that is the area of manuscripts. One way of examining the popularity of a book is by examining the extant remains of those books in the ancient world. Manuscripts left behind can tell us very much about which books Christians were busy reading, which they were using, and, of course, which they were copying. And, of course, when we look at that, we can get a pretty general sense of which books Christians valued by virtue of the excellent remains of those manuscripts. Studies like this have been done by a number of scholars, <clears throat> Larry Hurtado at Edinburgh being an example of one who's done these sorts of things. Now, as we say a few words about this, let me just give one caveat. Simply counting the number of manuscripts is, of course, not the whole story, right? It's not a bulletproof argument. We don't simply say, well, the numbers of manuscripts mean absolutely in a definitive way, therefore these books are in, these books are out. No, that's not the argument. As we'll see, there's books that were clearly regarded as canonical. We have very few manuscripts up. Ironically, Mark is an example of this. We have very few copies of Mark, even though it's clearly re regarded as canonical. 
But as a whole, though, looking at the extant manuscript remains gives us an, an interesting and I think very uh, revealing look at the way Christians use their books. So let's take a look at some of these details. When we examine the physical remains of Christian texts from the 2nd and 3rd century, and by the way, we'll only be examining here the 2nd and 3rd centuries, we quickly discover that the New Testament writings were far and away the most popular, and apocryphal writings were very far behind. I'll give you a few examples of this. Starting with the New Testament. When we look at the New Testament just in the first three centuries, <clears throat> uh, what we see is we have over 60 manuscripts in whole or in part of New Testament books. Most of our copies from this time period come from Matthew, John, Luke, Acts, Romans, Hebrews, and believe it or not, Revelation. Gospel of John proves to be the most popular. The, the latest count of the Gospel of John is we have over 18 manuscripts from this time period just of John. And many of those are actually from the second century. P52 being the most famous example of this, but also P90, P66, and P75 all have second century dates behind them. Matthew's not far behind in terms of popularity. We have more than 12 manuscripts of Matthew. Many of those are dated to the 2nd century. P64 and 67, P103, P104, and others. Now, just pausing for a moment on the New Testament documents, in our little world, we don't really know what to do with those numbers, but in terms of documents of antiquity, that's a lot of manuscripts. The idea that you could go that far back and get that many manuscripts tells us that early Christians were prolific producers of texts. They valued them, they copied them, and there were many of them. When you do ancient history, you only know about events, at least in a narrative sense, through text. And historians never have as many as you, as you want. We'd be lucky to have one copy of, of various writings from this time period. Maybe two. To have this many of any writing is, is uh, very, very impressive. This is particularly, though, drawn... Uh, uh, you can particularly see the significance of this when we compare it to the apocryphal writings. So if you look at the apocryphal writings, things form a sharp relief here. When you look at the apocryphal writings, we're talking here about writings that have the same kind of genre as New Testament writings uh, and often are attributed to apostles like Gospel of Thomas and so forth. It may even be attributed by some folks as scripture from time to time. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about apocryphal texts. During the same time period as the New Testament, second and third centuries, what we find is that we possess approximately 17 manuscripts of apocryphal writings. And this is more than apocryphal gospels, by the way. This is apocryphal writings in general. Writings like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and the Gospel of Peter, which we'll all look at in a moment, the Proto-Evangelium of James, and more. And the, and the manuscript that has the most of all these is Thomas. And then we have three whole manuscripts when it comes to Thomas. Now, one might ask at this point about whether the uh, fortuitous remains of manuscripts can actually be reliable as a guide. I mean, some might wonder, well, why is the random preservation of manuscripts in one place necessarily reflective of, of general popularity in the empire. Well, this has been examined. We don't have time to fully enter into this, but a scholar by the name of Eldam Epp has argued very persuasively, I think, that there was quite uh, efficient circulation of books in the ancient world. If we had time here, I could actually take you through several examples of this, of the way books are copied in one place, and then we find a, a manuscript in another place way across the empire in a very short amount of time. What does that suggest? That suggests that when you look at the general popularity of books in one area, it's a fa fairly decent indicator of popularity of books as a whole. Once you realize that, then, the disparity between New Testament books and apocryphal books is remarkable. In fact, New Testament books, in terms of the remaining manuscripts, outnumber apocryphal books almost four to one in terms of popularity. 
I want to give you some quotes from some major scholars that uh, analyze this evidence and tell you what they deem uh, relevant from it. Larry Hurtado says this, the low number of apocryphal manuscripts do not justify any notion that these writings were particularly favored. And, he says, whatever circles used these writings were clearly a minority among Christians of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Another scholar, C.H. Roberts, certainly not an evangelical in any, from any stretch of the imagination, says this, once the evidence of the papyri is available, indisputably Gnostic texts are conspicuous by their rarity. Just don't find them. Scott Charlesworth lastly notices this of the same evidence. If the heterodox, meaning heretical, if the heretical groups were in the majority for so long, the non-canonical gospels should have been preserved in greater numbers, and they have not been. What does that leave us then? It leaves us with a pretty impressive uh, piece of analysis here, is that the sheerly, just the sheer looking at the manuscripts tells us there's a great disparity in terms of the, the popularity of canonical books over apocryphal books. This is the kind of thing that doesn't get talked about in a newspaper article. This is the kind of thing that's left out when you want to read a book like The Da Vinci Code. Yes, were apocryphal books used? Sure. Were they, were they anything remotely competing with canonical books? Not even close. And there's another factor here, which I've not even included in your notes, but I'll just mention offhand here, and I think it's important to note, and that is one of the other factors isn't just the amount of manuscripts left behind, but another factor that's often not noticed is the frequency of citations of books. So it's one thing to say, Clement of, Clement of Alexandria cites the Gospel of the Egyptians, therefore... But no one ever pauses to ask, how much does he cite the Gospel of Egyptians compared to Matthew? And the answer is unbelievably different. In a recent scholarly study, I think he, Clement of Alexandria quoted Matthew over 700 times. His total apocryphal Gospel citations only numbered about 16. It tells you that just in terms of disparity of citations, it's also quite uh, different. Now, where does that leave us after Roman number one? Roman number one is just a general look at the scene. And the general look at the scene is, there's reasons to think that the role of apocryphal Gospels is exaggerated. Uh, it's not nearly as, as widespread and popular as maintained. And even when they are used, it's not necessarily an indication that they're used as Scripture. That leads us to Roman numeral 2, which is our specific response. Here's where we want to talk about specific writings. Were there any that got close? I get this question all the time. Imagine you do too. Um, you know, if you read Dan Brown's book, you get the impression that this was a vote somewhere. Um, and that some people got in a room and voted on the canon, and then some books just missed by a couple votes. Um, I can assure you there was never any vote anywhere on anything related to the canon, um, and certainly nobody missed by a few votes uh, in these apocryphal books. Uh, but what we're going to do here is we're going to go through some of the major contenders, and I'm going to give you at least a little bit of the lay of the land of what's out there and what the real shot they had of getting in is, which, as you'll see in a moment, isn't much. Um, the first two in your list at the bottom of your page there are the ones, in my opinion, that got the best opportunity uh, to, uh, to get into um, the uh, canon. And by the way, there's a typo. I just noticed it. I don't know how I missed that. Point B there on Roman numeral 2 should be the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, I don't know why First Clement's in there, but forgive me for that. Uh, you'll see when I get there that we're not talking about First Clement here. Okay, so let's start first with the very first book. This book is first for a reason. This is the book that's got the best shot. Of, had the best shot of being in the canon in terms of historical interest, and that is the Shepherd of Hermas. Now, imagine many of you right now are going, the Shepherd of what? And what? Yeah, shepherd? What? Hermas? That's it? You're thinking, I've never even heard of the book of the Shepherd of Hermas. I've never even read the book. You mean Thomas is in it? You mean the Gospel of Peter is in it? 
I mean, the Gospel of Judas isn't it. I mean, what about all the high-flying, big-time Gospels? Those aren't it. I mean, Shepherd of Hermas? This tells you something, is that when, when, when media likes to latch on to interesting books to promote as alternate versions of Christianity, they're not really dealing with anything historical, because historically, the Shepherd of Hermas was the closest thing to being in the canon that wasn't. And as we'll see, it really wasn't that close. Let me say a few things about the Shepherd. The Shepherd, believe it or not, is not a Gospel at all. The Shepherd is sort of like the book of Revelation. It's actually an apocalypse. It details a series of visions or revelations given by an angelic messenger, sometimes dressed like a shepherd, thus the title, to a second century Christian from Rome named Hermas. So this is a book written around the middle of the second century. Just pause on that for a moment. This already tells you a lot about the shepherd of Hermas. It was written in the middle of the second century, and everybody knew it was written in the middle of the second century. It wasn't written by an apostle. It wasn't written by a companion of an apostle. It wasn't even really written in such a way that would make you think it was, it was drawn on apostolic tradition. It was a book that was written in the middle of the second century that had apocalyptic things that Christians were interested in, read a lot, and found very popular. It's interesting to note that in our earliest canonical list, the Muratorian fragment, the Muratorian canon, which we mentioned earlier, rejects it outright. It doesn't even put it really in the disputed category. Why does it reject it outright? And this is interesting to note. The Mediterranean canon says, we reject it because it was written very recently in our own times. Now, pausing on that for a moment, it's important to realize that when the canon was being formed, some people have this idea that when the canon was being formed, it was like a, it was like a, a writing contest that anyone could enter, right? It's like a literary contest. Oh, you got a good book you've written that you think could be, well, send it along. Let's have a look at it. We'll get all the books in and we'll, we'll read them and we'll see who wins the competition or something like this. What's interesting, though, is that the Mertrian fragment tells us something, that even in the second century, there was a clear idea in people's minds that recent productions were not even in play. They weren't even contenders. Why? Well, this goes back to the apostles, right? The only way you have a book that's even a contender is if it's from an apostle. And so if you have a book that we know was not written by an apostle, it was written in our own time, it may be a great book. It may be a valuable book. But it's not really a contender. Why? Because it doesn't have the core credential of what constitutes a canonical book. Now, even though this is the case about the Shepherd of Hermas, it still was wildly popular. Church fathers loved it. They quoted it all the time. A few, on occasion, seemed to even come close to quoting it as scripture. It shouldn't be concerning to us. Uh, I tell people all the time, look, you know, it took a while for the dust to settle on some of these things. But I'll give you a few examples of this. Irenaeus at one time calls the Shepherd of Hermas graphe, which is the Greek word for scripture. What's interesting is that Irenaeus does this and then never, ever, ever mentions it again. And in a lot of his canonical discussions, never mentions it. This has led a lot of scholars, not evangelicals, but critical scholars, to suggest that when Irenaeus mentions uh, the shepherd of Hermas as graphe, he just means as a writing. Graphe can also mean writing. We don't know. We cannot be sure. Another person who uses shepherd a lot is Clement of Alexandria. But we've already talked about Clement of Alexandria. He never affirms the shepherd's canonical status, and he just listed alongside a billion other sources he quotes all the time. And as people say, well, because he listed besides other scriptural books, people say he regarded it as scriptural. But, but, but Clement of Alexandria lists Plato alongside a scriptural books, but no one's suggesting that he's suggesting that Plato uh, is scriptural. Origen valued the shepherd. He used it a good bit. We already talked about Origen, but Origen had an express list of canonical books. doesn't mention the shepherd. Tertullian, another church father, rejected it outright as false. In fact, Tertullian was even more aggressive. He said, every council of churches has judged it to be apocryphal. Eusebius in the 4th century regards it as spurious. Not even a disputed book, but just completely outside the canon. Here's an interesting other fact about the shepherd. 
does not appear in any of our fourth century lists. Now, <clears throat> this is the closest contender you have uh, to really getting in, uh, is the Shepherd of Hermas, and it really isn't that close. I'll mention one other final fact about the Shepherd of Hermas, is it was actually, this is, this is a little-known fact, and you may not know this, one of our earliest codices, manuscripts, is called Codex Sinaiticus. It's a fourth-century codex. What's interesting is at the very end of that book are two books that are not in the New Testament, namely the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas, which is what we're getting ready to look at in just a moment. So people have taken Codex Sinaiticus and said, see, look, you've got two apocryphal books in a manuscript of the New Testament, therefore they're regarded as Scripture. Well, I can assure you that's not the case. One of the things that's important to, regard, to, to notice is where the shepherd and Barnabas appear in that codex. They occur at the very end, even after the book of Revelation. Isn't it interesting they're tacked on at the end? Why would that be? Well, we know that in early Christianity, when there were canonical discussions and canonical lists, that often disputed books or books that were deemed valuable but not scriptural were often put at the end. There's several other examples of this. And so when you look at a codex like Codex Sinaiticus, there's no reason to think that the shepherd of Hermas and, and, and uh, the Epistle of Barnabas were there received on any level like the other books of the New Testament. Now, speaking of the Epistle of Barnabas, let's move on to our second contender here. The Epistle of Barnabas is also a book that you look at and go, what? Come on, give me something exciting here. Epistle of Barnabas? How is that going to be a real contender? But it was. It was very popular. It was a theological treatise in the early second century, kind of written in the form of a letter. It talked a lot about the Old Testament and the Jewish versus Christian understanding of the Old Testament and so on. The only reason that this got a lot of attention is because when it, the title, Epistle of Barnabas, some regarded this Barnabas as the companion of Paul. In other words, the only reason this book got any, any traction at all in early Christianity is because a few people suggested that the Barnabas being mentioned there might have been Paul's companion. And if it was Paul's companion, you probably have a book here that might be canonical. The only person, though, who really takes the bait on this is Clement of Alexandria. And even he doesn't really do it, but I'll explain what I mean. He comes the closest to regarding the book as canonical, and we only know this because Eusebius tells us that Clement wrote a commentary on it. We don't know much else other than that. Clement never calls it scripture. In fact, it's interesting, in Clement's other writings, he actually critiques it at one point, suggests that maybe he doesn't regard it as scripture, but we're just in the dark on that. He, maybe he did regard it as scripture, we just don't know. Origen does the same thing at one point. Origen at one point uses the phrase, it is written, to refer to the book of Barnabas. And so someone suggested, well, maybe Origen thought it was scripture. The problem with that, though, is that later, Origen lists out his canonical books and never mentions Barnabas. Is it possible that Origen thought maybe it could be scripture at one point in his life and then later changed his mind? No one knows. But these are really the only places he gets much attention. The book is absent from the Muratorian canon, not listed there. Eusebius shows it is completely rejected, not even a part of the disputed books. Um, and even the earliest writers like Irenaeus and Tertullian show no interest in Barnabas, never seem to consider it as canonical. In fact, it lacks a place in almost all our 4th century lists and never really has any real contention in the 4th century when the dust settles on these things. Most people reject Barnabas for the obvious reason, is that when all was said and done, it was clearly a 2nd century production. And as a 2nd century production, it had no real shot of getting in. That leads us to the third book we'll be looking at here, and this is the one, of course, everyone wants to talk about, and that's the Gospel of Thomas. <clears throat> Let me say a couple words about the Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas is doubtless the most famous of all the books I'll be mentioning here today in terms of apocryphal writings. But the, the crazy thing, though, is there was never any real shot that Thomas had of getting in the canon. 
In fact, when it comes to early patristic writers, they hardly ever mention Thomas, and the only time they do is to condemn the thing. Several things about Thomas you should know. First, it was discovered in 1945 in this Nag Hammadi uh, cache of, of manuscripts that was discovered in Egypt. Interestingly, it was discovered by a, a, a shepherd uh, whose name was Muhammad Ali. How about that, huh? Not the boxer. 1945, Muhammad Ali would not have been doing excavations in the deserts of Egypt. A monk, obviously a Muslim monk by the name of Muhammad Ali, was digging up the soil uh, for a variety of reasons I won't go into for farming, and they came across a stone jar. And he and his buddy looked at the stone jar and think, well, should we break it and see? Uh, it was like a, a, it was a stone jar. It was a clay jar. Should we break it open and see what's in it? Well, his buddy said, well, we don't want to do that. There might be a genie in there, an evil spirit, literally. Well, they decided that they could sell what was in there, and that became more persuasive in their fear of the evil spirit, so they broke it open. And in there are rolls and rolls and rolls of manuscripts. One of these manuscripts was the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is not a gospel in the normal way you think of a gospel. The Gospel of Thomas is actually a list of sayings of Jesus. 114 of them, in fact. There's no narrative of his life. There's no birth. There's no resurrection. There's no death. Uh, there's no things he did. There's no miracle stories. It's just a list of sayings of Jesus. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with having a, a list of sayings of Jesus. But it's just important for you to know that this was not a normal, traditional, narrative gospel like you might have in mind. But even more to the point here in terms of the Gospel of Thomas is the type of sayings these include. Every once in a while, you'll come across a saying in the Gospel of Thomas that echoes a canonical saying, and you probably think you probably derived it from the canonical Gospels. But most of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas have a, have a very strong Gnostic flavor. Now, Gnosticism was a second century church heresy. We won't have the time here to go into Gnosticism in any detail, but here's the, here's the compelling point I want you to realize. Gnosticism did not come around until the second century. It was not a first century phenomenon. So if you have a book that's Gnostic, what does that tell you about when it was written? At least the second century. And of course, everyone knew that about Thomas. Not only was Gnosticism just heretical in terms of doctrine, but it was clearly late. It was clearly secondary. One of the things that's most interesting about Thomas in this regard is it has a very bizarre and esoteric final verse uh, in it. Uh, and I'll tell you a little story about this final verse that's quite funny. Uh, every year, I usually take my Gospels class to a certain progressive church in the city of Charlotte that likes to bring in critical scholars that critique the Bible. So I try to convince my Gospels class that you probably need to go hear these lectures so you can sort of be up to speed on these things. So every, once, every year I, I take my 35 or 40 students and truck them downtown to this church for a Friday night lecture where very famous scholars come in and, and, and give lectures. Well, not long ago we had a, a lecture by a scholar from Princeton by the name of Elaine Pagels who actually wrote the book on Thomas, literally, uh, a book called uh, The Gnostic Gospels. Uh, she's very famous and her lecture was about the Gospel of Thomas. And so sure enough, she's talking in this lecture about how wonderful Thomas is because it has a new version of Christianity in it. The Christianity isn't that you need to be saved from the outside. This version of Christianity is that you're saved by what's already within you. It's, it's by enlightenment from within. You can see how wonderful this might sound to postmodern ears. Well, when the lecture was over, it was Q&A time. So here I was with my 40 students, and I was like, we're going to have some fun with this one. So uh, I said to one of my students, I said, look, here, here's the question you need to ask when the Q&A time comes. So I'm feeding information to these guys. <laughs> So sure enough, question opens up. The student raises his hand. She calls on him. Very first student she calls on. He stands up, almost reading, doesn't even know what I'm having him say. But he says, well, thank you, Dr. Pegel, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us about the last logion in the Gospel of Thomas, logion number 114. 
You could tell as soon as he asked this, she just, their disposition changed entirely. She didn't want to talk about this. She never mentioned it in her lecture. Well, so then she had to quote Logion 114, which says this. Jesus said, for every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can imagine for someone like her, that wasn't the best thing she wanted to talk about. Um, and so I was just curious, what, what possibly is she going to do with this? Because it doesn't fit her idea that this is the favorite gospel. Her response, this is exactly what happened, she said, well, I don't think that verse was originally in the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> was the response that was given. And I was stunned. I, I, even, 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 I was like, I could not believe that was what was said, because what, there's no evidence for this at all. All the historical texts we have with, with the complete Gospel of Thomas have this in. They have no indication that it was out of an earlier version. It's pure conjecture. It's this, I want to have a gospel like I want to have it, and so I'm going to rewrite it in my own head on the way it should have been. It's completely outside the realm of any scholarship to make such a statement. But that tells you a little bit about the kind of things that happen with these apocryphal gospels. So the Gospel of Thomas was never even close to making the canon. In fact, not only was the Gospel of Thomas not close, it was outright condemned every chance the fathers got. So I said a moment ago that some gospels were used partially as beneficial. Thomas was not one of those. Thomas was left out entirely. Uh, let's look next to the Gospel of Peter. And for time reasons, I'm going to make this my last gospel here. So uh, forgive me for the, leaving out the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary. You can read up uh, on your own over those interesting gospels. The Gospel of Peter, let me make a few comments on this. We only have really one Gospel of Peter fragment. We have a couple of other smaller ones from an earlier date, but the earliest ones we have are about a ninth century fragment. It's actually found in a tomb, interestingly. The Gospel of Peter is very different than the Gospel of Thomas because the Gospel of Peter is actually a narrative gospel that describes Jesus' death and resurrection. So Thomas is just a list of sayings. The Gospel of Peter describes Jesus' death and resurrection. But like most apocryphal books, one of the things you'll notice as you study apocryphal literature is that apocryphal books like to fill in the gaps the canonical Gospels leave open. This is why we have a lot of infancy Gospels, by the way. You ever wonder what Jesus was like as a child? I do. I want to know, right? Well, apparently we weren't the only ones who asked that question. Because in the early church, they wrote a number of infancy gospels just speculating on what Jesus would have been like as a child. One of them is known as the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is a whole other funny book we could spend some time looking at. But one of the other things that people wonder about is what would the resurrection have looked like if you could have seen it? I mean, notice when the, when the women come to the tomb, that resurrection is over, right? The tomb stone is rolled back, not so Jesus could get out, but so that they could get in. The, 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 the tombs roll back, the stones roll back, they can go in and see the empty tomb and so on and so forth. So it's, it's over. Well, what, ever wonder what it might be like if you saw it? Well, that's what the Gospel of Peter does. It fills in the gap. It tells you what the resurrection is like. And when it describes it, you can tell this is legendary, embellished, very strange and bizarre. So what happens when the resurrection takes place is Jesus comes out of the tomb, flanked by two angels, one on each side. But Jesus is not a normal height, and Jesus isn't really physical. Jesus is this huge visible creature whose head reaches to the clouds. So there's a giant Jesus uh, coming out of the, the tomb. Uh, heads reach to the clouds. It's this dramatic, huge event with an angel on each side of him. But then it gets better. So Jesus is coming out of the tomb, and then following Jesus out of the tomb is the cross itself. Following him out of the tomb. Now, I don't know what, how. I mean, is the cross floating or walking, but it's coming out of the tomb after Jesus. And this just about when you think you've seen enough, the third thing happens, which sort of seals the whole thing, is the cross starts talking starts speaking, and the cross speaks and says uh, various things and so on. Now, what does all this tell you? That tells you that the Gospel of Peter is a late, embellished uh, document, 
probably drawing from the canonical stories and adding its own place, own material, where? In the gaps left by the canonical gospels, which is the whole point. Um, so it's a strange uh, document, to be sure. It almost sounds like someone wrote it with uh, something in their system uh, when they put this gospel together. The, uh, the, the, the final thing I'll mention about the Gospel of Peter uh, is that it has what's called a docetic heresy in it, which is why Serapion rejected it once he read it, and that is this idea that Jesus wasn't really a human. You already get this impression from the 40-foot Jesus, right, that comes out of the tomb. He's not a normal human. But also when he dies on the cross, it says in the text that, that Jesus dies on the cross as, as, as feeling no pain, which suggests that when he died on the cross, he wasn't really physical in the way you and I are. He wasn't really a man. He died on the cross. He didn't really feel any pain. That's called a docetic heresy. Docetism in early Christianity was the belief that, that Jesus wasn't really fully human. You may be surprised to know this, but many of the heresies in early Christianity that the Orthodox were fighting against aren't what you expect. Today, we have to work really hard to convince people that Jesus is divine. Well, actually, in the ancient world, they had a lot of times had to do the opposite. They had to convince Jesus was human, convince people that he was actually a man. People who followed Jesus were so excited about him, they kind of made him super divine and didn't really realize he was actually a physical person like you and me. All right, that draws. let me draw this to a close here in this uh, last lecture. Uh, and then I know we have a Q, extended Q&A time. What we've done in this last lecture is address this question of apocryphal literature. Is it true, as Walter Bauer has suggested, that there were competing versions of Christianity, each with their own books, uh, and that apocryphal books were just as valid, just as early, just as popular as canonical books, and it was only the late 4th century church that forced their hand of one group that won, uh, and that is the explanation for the canon we have. No, that is not the case. It's very clear from the very beginning that although apocryphal books played a role and although they were a popular at points, there was never any real shot at any of them getting into the canon. What you find then is that Christians had a remarkable amount of unity about books for the most part. Sure, on the fringes there was some dis- dispute from time to time, but at the end of the day, apocryphal books are a curious and interesting part of early Christian history, but have no real claim to be canonical books. Thank you very much. <laughs>